0: This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. Are you left wanting more at the end of each episode of this show? Are these short sessions getting you fired up to try new skills for yourself and share the journey with others who are working through the same challenges? Well, the good news is that this podcast is only the beginning. The real action and learning is happening on the Regenerative Skills Discord channel, where you can connect with the whole community to dive deeper into the topics on the show, explore solutions, and share your journey and blooper reel with an active group that can't wait to hear from you. You can get your questions answered and share knowledge and wisdom of your own on a safe platform that unlike the social media giants, won't steal your personal data to advertise to you in creepy ways. Ditch Facebook and join us where the real skill builders are. Just find the link to the Discord chat on the homepage at RegenerativeSkills.com. Hey there, everybody, and welcome back. So now that I'm spending so much more time out on the land here at the new farm, I'm becoming a lot more conscious of my health. Nutrition has been really important for me in the last handful of years already, especially as I've struggled to overcome the chronic digestive issues that plagued me all the way up until my 30s. And over time, I've dug deeper into whole food nutrition, fermentation in the gut microbiome, the importance of healthy fats and unpasteurized products, and quite a few other subtopics around nutrition. At the same time, I've read and researched a lot of work that is very dogmatic and extreme in their nutritional and healthy living advice. Some of the recommendations are really unrealistic for my lifestyle, or they miss important holistic context of an overall healthy way of living in connection to one's surroundings and their sources of food. And so for this and many other reasons, I've been closely following the development of Richard Perkins' new book, Farm, Fish, Hunt, Pick, Bake. And like many young farmers and homesteaders, I know Richard from his work and educational videos around the development of Ridgedale Farm in northern Sweden. And I've interviewed him quite a few times already in the past on previous seasons of this show, and even hosted skill exchange events online with him for the climate farmers community. Now, cooking and nutrition has been a minor part of his online teachings until recently, but it's been very much in line with the ethos of his ideas on reconnecting with the land and living in close relationship with your food sources, both plants and animals. Now, as Richard has been transitioning from beyond full-time farming... He's collaborated with the incredible chefs who've catered his many farm events and trainings to create a cookbook that conveys the full scope of not only the recipes, but also the process of foraging, farming, processing, and preserving all of the food that Ridgedale Farm is well known for. In this interview, Richard and I explore where the inspiration for this new focus on food came from and how the book has come together. We also dive into re-emerging traditional concepts from the book like nose-to-tail eating, the art and culture of fermentation, the importance of both raw and properly cooked foods, the redemption of animal fats, and so much more. I've often thought that even if I didn't love the farm lifestyle myself, I'd still be in love with regenerative agriculture just for the food. And this massive volume covers so much of exactly what it means to reconnect with the ecology and processes of our food sources to make the enjoyment, appreciation, and reverence for what we eat a part of our lifestyles once again. Now this episode will be the first in a non-linear series exploring holistic health, nutrition, and well-being, as this is becoming a much bigger focus in my life right now. Now if anybody has recommendations on other voices on these topics that you'd like to hear featured on this show, please reach out to me through the Discord channel or on social media. I want to include as many perspectives on this broad topic, so I look forward to hearing your suggestions. Now, if you haven't listened to previous episodes that I've done with Richard, I highly recommend them and I've linked to them on the show notes at regenerativeskills.com. But for now, I'll hand things over to Richard Perkins. Hey Richard, thanks so much for making time. It's great to have you back on the show. How are you doing right now?
1: Fantastic. Yeah. Thanks for having us on. I really appreciate it. Nice to see
0: you again. Well, you look very well and you are in a a very interesting stage of development of both your farm, your business, and this third book in a trilogy of incredible educational resources that you've been putting out. Maybe you can start by telling me about what was the inspiration behind writing a cookbook when you're most well known for farming.
1: (laughs) Well, it's actually been on the cards for, I think, the last six years. I mean, throughout the farm's development, we've been serving 10,000 meals every summer. And I've always been entrepreneurial and self-publishing the books that I have written. So I, I wanted to sort of try and help step the people up that were cooking. We had chefs here every summer. So I wanted to sort of help them in their careers. by hey, you're cooking all this amazing food from the farm. If you just document what you're doing, we could make something out of this so that a lot of people would value. And particularly, I think a lot of people in this space want to start hosting groups and events on their farms. and get overwhelmed by the catering aspect or they have caterers coming in who are then not very in tune with the products the farm has available. So I think there's a lot of people who, who want to be able to cater well after all we're farming incredible quality food and that's you know really the showcase i think over my years working in this field going to a lot of events and running trainings going to other people's trainings i often felt like the food was under prioritized you know it would be like a meat farm and we're serving vegetarian food because it's cheaper it's like no hang on a minute this is like this is the one central point that we're meeting and celebrating is the food we're eating. This should be like gourmet, best food people have ever eaten kind of thing. So I always wanted to get this project together. And I've also had my own sort of personal journey into dietary traditions from around the world. I've lived those out experientially throughout my adult life. And I've always been interested in anthropology and looking at what makes sense. I feel like the world's getting increasingly crazy. And if you look at modern health trends, like the all-cause mortality, exponential rates have increased there around the world, something's not working well. And those of us connected to land through farming, through homesteading, generally have a lot of knowledge around this topic. And what I wanted to do was to create a book. And I'm really glad actually that this book didn't come around until now because i I think the synergy between the five people working on this project has brought about a collective intelligence far greater than what would have happened if i'd produced this in the past and it's allowed me to take a much more balanced view on diet overall because i've tried a lot of extreme experiments on my own diet and if i had produce this book coming from any of those particular vantage points, it would have been much less useful. And so a large part of this book is about remembering how traditional diets were put together all over the world and taking and extrapolating the core elements of that. And it's it's actually a very large book like the other books. It's a year's worth of eating. And I think another big piece that makes it a bit unique is I mean, I'm not very familiar with the world of cookbooks, so I don't know how that industry is working fully, but I heard from a lot of people writing in that, oh, is this just going to be another farm cookbook with seasonal vegetables and then imported ingredients from all over the world? it's like, no, actually, this is everything completely from our climate zone and farm. Save a few spices and maybe some high-quality olive oil. But everything else is completely from the wild or the farm around us and we've gone to the length to create beautiful recipes for substitutes for anything that you might import that are working and tasty and a lot of the wild foods that's often are used just because they're there we've tried to take a gourmet take on those with some very innovative chefs so that it's actually really good food not just using wild ingredients because they're there so, it's yeah, it's been really rich, and it's a specifically, for me, it's a very important project because it kind of ends this chapter of my life. This is the third large book that we're publishing, and it it's like a full cycle for me. So, we've made the book, Regenerative Agriculture, which really sets out how to think about and design and manage an economic small mixed farm. And then the Builds book that we wrote was responding to people from all over the world who were writing all the time, wanting to know if we had plans for eggmobiles and this kind of thing. And this book then ties the full circle of how to actually use this food from cooking to storing and preserving to catering with it. And so we tried to represent a whole year's worth of eating as well as catering and dealing with kids, et cetera. So that. Yeah, it sort of completes the output from this farm. And it, it actually marks the end of this farm for me because I'm moving on from this place.
0: And that's something I'm really excited to explore with you later on. But to go a little bit deeper, let's talk about the collaborators that helped to inform the content of this book, how you started to work together and the unique contributions that they bring.
1: Sure. And so it's it's uh, it's all people that have been through the farm. And there's a chef from the UK who has worked at some of the highest uh, fine dining restaurants on the planet with some of the famous chefs. But he's gone through his own journey into animal-based nutrition and wild food specifically and is bringing like a fine dining touch to purely hunted, farmed, gathered foods. There's a professional caterer also from the UK who I've hired for events who specializes in catering for 50 to 200 people uh, using the ingredients of the place. And so that that's focused on the catering chapter to allow people to really understand how to approach large group cooking and catering. And my partner who's a vegetable grower has written the chapter specifically on how to shine the light and exemplify vegetables. So getting into more of the nerdy, you know, like just like everybody knows that meat should be a certain temperature to be perfect, but social vegetables, And most people treat vegetables as a kind of thing you chuck in rather than really bringing out the, the properties of it, how to store them, how to cook them. And so we've made a, a chapter that's taking every vegetable that we've grown in the market gardens here on the farm and... Shining the light on that vegetable. How do you? How, what's the best thing you can do with this individual vegetable? So that's a really cool addition to this. And then uh, another chef from Germany, who's very much focused on preservation and animal-based diets, and specialized in meat broths and bone broths, and the scientific approach of how to nutrient-dense eating. Let's say so. A lot of from a cooking perspective, a lot of people know about meat broths for flavor and depth, but most people don't know about the depth of the science involved of how to optimally process those foods for nutrition, as well as more dairy and how to utilize all of the bits of animals that people don't tend to eat so much, the most nutrient-dense parts that people all over the world used to eat as a mainstay in their staple, uh, staple diet. We came together through I think the idea was hatched last summer to like finally get this project. And I realized that I had to drive that because I have a habit when I take the reins and decide to make something happen, it tends to happen. So I got fed up of trying to present this opportunity to people, and they never quite took it on. So I just acted as the driver and coordinated. And it was a really fun process, actually. For me, I cooked a lot of what I'm qualified to do, which is more normal household family cooking. And it was really fun to coordinate the process because, you know, a lot of cookbooks are made in it's so contrived. There's airbrushing of food. There's incredibly elaborate sets constructed. And, it, you know, you're taking a photo of something that's now not edible, basically. I wanted to. I wanted this to be real, and I wanted it to be the food we actually eat, and I wanted it to be tied back into the land. So it's like, okay, here's this beautiful pasture full of lovely mutton, but this is it being gutted and eviscerated. This is how this meat's produced, and now we're jumping into pasture-raised lamb and mutton recipes, starting at the nose, ending at the tail, and really inviting the, the reader to where this food came from you know so the photos are not airbrushed they're beautiful photos but we all had to coordinate in a way that our photos have to look the same the language of the book has to sound the same and only two of us are native English speakers so it's been quite a process but we've we collaborated by only using daylight for photography so that all of our photos would come in the same sort of light threshold and that's quite logistical because up in sweden in the winter i mean i had to sometimes cook several main courses first thing in the morning and take photos before two in the afternoon and then didn't want to eat because i just felt (laughs) done with cooking and and somehow we managed to make that all work and it's come together incredibly beautifully
0: That's really interesting to get an insight into the process of creating a book like this and the logistics and the considerations that go even behind, you know, like you said, setting up pictures with with natural daylight. I'd like to go further into the nutritional aspect, because as you mentioned earlier, you've gone through quite a few experiments in your own diet, which I can only imagine have informed parts of this book. And yet you're also attempting to look at it as holistically as possible, like you said, with the um, the protagonism of certain vegetables, which are often just considered as something you chuck in at the end, but also through your perspective as a farmer for having processed all of these things. In most cookbooks, people see ingredients just as something that have already been processed, and you just add them at certain times and cook them to certain temperatures. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> this cookbook really goes through the entire process of you know, getting them out of the ground or slaughter and butchery. How has that informed the actual nutritional aspect of the eating of each of these things when you see them in the entire process?
1: Well, it's, I mean, it's hard to know how to approach that question, but essentially, there's sort of 10 or 12 overarching principles of what I would consider leading towards good nutrition and health and there's some key things to avoid maybe i can summarize those and we can dive deeper into any of those if that's interesting it's quite a broad reaching category but i guess that is the summary of what informs this i think like the first thing that to say would be you know in In the way that modern health or disease is going, probably the single biggest shift that could happen in terms of public health would be things to avoid rather than what to actually eat. And something that you won't find in this book is any highly refined grains that haven't been treated appropriately, uh, zero industrial sugars, Zero industrial seed oil and no denatured or highly processed foods. And if if I think from a basic health and well being perspective, the elimination of those things from people's diet anywhere on the planet would do more for public health and relieving impact on the medical system than any other thing you could think of. You know, if we look at any traditional diet around the planet, there were never refined sugars or highly refined grains grains were always processed through leavening in every culture on the planet people had raw milk this is a really big topic because i think most of us in the west have basically no access to raw milk Uh, but pasteurized homogenized skim milk is basically a huge human error i mean this pig food at best Uh, We never had refined or hydrogenated vegetable oils or synthetic additives or fake foods, these kind of things. And I think that particularly I've got a big problem with the new fats that are all over the world and all throughout the processed uh, food industry now. Hydrogenated and partially hydrogenated seed oils, basically, which are linked increasingly linked to cancer, heart disease, and learning disabilities, growth problems, bone development problems. I mean, this is toxic things that humans—no human evolved to consume. Uh, In fact, you know, we could get into like how this has all come about through food lobbying and the sort of nefarious way that companies influence things like public health organizations and heart foundations through large generous donations and you know this has been going on for nearly 100 years in the case of vegetable oils, etc so that's a nice way for me to preface like here's things that you don't want to eat you know like you're doing most of the work by just avoiding those things um, And I'd say that's true for most people, especially in westernized countries now. Um, But basic principles are eating whole, unprocessed foods, whatever they are, eating animals and animal fats and animal organs and eating animals specifically that have been raised with respect to their natural physiology. And then because for humans, it's so important to get the omega-3, omega-6, balance right. They're essential fatty acids acids that we can't produce in the human body. The best sources of those are animal products as well as wild fish and fish eggs. That's becoming a problem for a lot of people to find seafood and fish from unpolluted waters, but they're particularly good for their omega acid ratios. And then eating all parts of those animals for the sake of nutrient density as well as the sort of uh, responsibility on the consumer to eat anatomically appropriately so most people i guess remove from their food supply they want to go and eat beef they might tend towards going and taking a steak and they'll probably eat far more steak than mince for example but 70 of an animal is mince Then there's, you know, for nutrient density, that's a major part of this book is like we need to be eating much more nutrient dense foods. There's countless studies of the nutrition levels in fruits and vegetables and animals decreasing in the last you 50, 60 years of industrial farming. Where do we get those things? Animals are the best source for those, but also using all parts like meat broth, bone broths and the science of that. Uh, You know, used on a daily basis, which was common in uh, most cultures all over the world. And eating full-fat dairy products, um, preferably raw or fermented. And there's ways people can do those things, you know, even if they don't have access to a cow (laughs) like I do. You know, it's quite common to find raw, unpasteurized cheeses in most of the modern world. And using lots of fats, there's a lot of misinformation around fat. I've spoken already about seed oil, which I detest. I don't let that anywhere near my house. And basically, if you eat processed food, you're going to be ingesting a lot of seed oils, which is super inflammatory, cause lots of problems with mineral and nutrient uptake. And we're told that animal fats uh, lead to heart disease, cancer. Basically, all of those studies have been debunks and they're based on very poor science i'm advocating lots of animal fats egg yolks cream butter lots of fats like most traditional cultures took 30 to 80 percent of their calories from saturated fats from animals and they didn't have heart disease or cancers like we have and in terms of vegetable oil so that's a big question for people but using traditional vegetables like high quality olive oil Coconut oil, uh, pretty okay for the body. Uh, Good olive oil can even be used for cooking, although it's much less stable and preferable than animal uh, rendered animal fats. Could use some expeller pressed, you know, very high quality things like flax or sesame oil, but these are not things that we would have had access to in any kind of traditional way. Um, Vegetables, salads, fruits. That's a tricky one. I'm I'm much more comfortable eating. I've I've come off the end of an animal based, heavy animal based diet, and I'm eating a lot more fruit and vegetables. I tend to cook most vegetables that I do eat, and then making sure all grains, legumes, nuts, seeds. If you're eating those things, they should be treated by leavening to to reduce anti-nutrients, phytic acids, that sort of thing that can cause major problems. Eating lots of fermented foods, using salt liberally. We're told salt is bad, but high quality sea salt or rock salt is, you know, every diet around the world has had a lot more salt in it in the past. It's not the salt, it's maybe the source of the salt that's the problem. And this is the the icky problem with so many dietary studies is a lot of studies are based on epidemiology and the problem, well, there's multiple problems with that but, you know, they will often lump together people that eat meat to include a truck driver who eats Big Macs and drinks milkshakes all day would be in the same category as me eating grass-fed beef from my own farm in beef broth that I made myself. It's You know, it's it's why it's such a murky territory. The it's very complex to study. So I just like to go back to what would our ancestors have done. You know, what did we evolve in the ecosystem with? How could we have practically gathered and stored these things, and use that to inform how I think about things, as well as looking at the remaining sort of hunter-gatherer people that still live today how do they eat what do they eat what do they celebrate how do they treat things and that's yeah i would say a lot of it is just remembering things that would have been common like a, a nice way to summarize it it's like if your grandfather if your grandmother wouldn't recognize it then probably you shouldn't eat it <laughs> yeah that's yeah that's it's a good guy summarizes the, the overall sort of principles but then also you know connected to health there's a whole slew of things to do with sleep and quality of water sunlight access exercise all the things that sort of are lumped together to make up health and well-being sure
0: sure and going into you know community connections mental health quality of relationships i mean it is a very broad topic something like health but looking at it through this lens of food through your own experiences and and what makes up the content of this book, it seems like the antithesis from this reductionist scientific view of nutrition, which breaks things down into individual components, at best single ingredients, but quite oftentimes anatomic small chemical compounds that are told we need, you know, let's say uh, more of an omega acid or maybe vitamin C and this gets extrapolated into, okay, you need uh, fish oil supplements and you need vitamin C pills rather than foods that contain all of the enzymes and the minerals that allow you to actually process these and digest them entirely. Yeah. Would that be a good assessment of, of how you look at nutrition differently through this volume?
1: Yeah, completely. I mean, look, another simple, way you could think about it's like a good diet doesn't need supplementation you know yeah if if, for example this whole piece with animal-based diets i've got no you know people can experiment and eat whatever they need to do i have big issue when we apply that to how to manage landscapes but i think people need to explore and learn through their own experience but yeah basic facts for me is that there are multiple nutrients that can only be obtained from animal-based sources. And what you find when you look at them is they are packaged in a way that's so complex, you could never meet those things with supplementary. Yeah, you, know, you could think about sugar, like refined white sugar and honey do the same thing in the body, but they are not the same thing. You know? They don't do the same in the whole sense. Same with things like milk, you know, the vitamins in milk don't do anything without the minerals and particularly trace minerals. And nowadays, the supermarkets are just totally full of pasteurized milk, which kills all the enzymes. So it stores better. But when you kill the enzymes, you diminish the vitamins and the milk protein. And it it's really those fats that allow you to metabolize the minerals. You can't metabolize the protein and minerals in milk without the animal fats. So skimmed milk which was promoted I think probably with similar age like skimmed milk was promoted to us as the healthy choice. It's like it's toxic. You know it's barely good enough for pig food but it's certainly not healthy food for humans so it's and you could think of that in all kinds of ways with food you know like, eat, like drinking Orange juice is nothing the same as eating an orange. You know, it's just a massive spike in blood sugar. It's not what nature packaged did that. Like. So I think just with childlike wisdom, we can deduce that, you know, nature packaged things in ways that we evolved eating things that worked. You know, you can look back at pictures of 1950s beach. all over the world and people were slim healthy tan they you know a lot of the modern health issues that we see around that are becoming normalized which is really scary they didn't exist very often in the past you know and so that's uh, i think that's largely to do with industrial but also the massive increase in sugar intake and added sugar to all of the processed foods which need that because they don't have taste and flavor there are um but yeah i think nature package things and we like to have reductionized compartmentalized bite-sized pieces of knowledge and i think big agri-food businesses can use that in their marketing very effectively and it's
0: It's tricky. Now, I understand it a little bit more from a U.S. perspective of how food became increasingly politicized and industrialized, mostly post-World War II, and how political policies started to influence the way we grow food through the Green Revolution and also the emergence of things like the U.S. Heart Health Association that started to spread bad science around the emergence (laughs) of these reduced foodstuffs, we could call them, into just their chemical components behind what seemed like perfectly good intentions of increasing the health of a population. However, mm, well, everything that you've been talking about has been the result of these These uh, poorly formed studies and these jumps to conclusions that were entirely false, but are extremely persistent and hard to shake in the culture at this point. I mean, how long has it been that we've known that, you know, low fat diets are not any healthier, in fact, detrimental, especially when you start to replace healthy fats with these hydrogenated seed oils, like you said. And and we still are constantly seeing in grocery stores low fat this skim milk that uh, you know replacement fats is like what's going to get us beyond this?
1: I have no idea. I have no idea. I mean, there's still massive marketing behind it. You know, it's big drug companies, it's big food companies. Often they're linked together, so you have companies feeding you toxic food who also benefit from giving you medicine at the other end of the system. That's a very hard thing to shift. I don't think I'm qualified to to speak to that. I mean it's it's very hard to know. I think we can you know I'm settling for influencing the sort of sphere of influence around me and that's enough for me. I don't I don't think it's I think it's even harder than influencing the farming world. You know, it's it's so much misinformation and it's so complex that I think it's very murky territory. And especially in today's world of social media and soundbite information, it's very hard to think about nuanced, complex topics in that format. So I have no idea how that's going to change. But, you know, I think as certain ecological changes or let's say climatic changes are happening some of these products are going to become less feasible at scale you know some of the great grain growing parts of America and Russia are going to face massive climatic changes that will make yeah, you know, something like 90% of store-bought products have grain in them and I've got nothing against properly utilized grain but it used to make up a tiny proportion of our diet not the majority of our calories by any stretch and i think it will take mass climatic change to affect global markets to change the way the masses eat i would imagine but i don't know that's a difficult one i mean you could apply that same question to medicine to education to everything i guess
0: a hundred percent the the patterns repeat themselves through every part of our culture at the moment and that brings me yeah. to, you know, what you're talking about, the, the necessity of quality animal products and how animal agriculture and animal products as a result have been demonized, not even as much by the scientific community the way they used to be. But now you're starting to get environmentalists, an entire subculture of people, uh, people ab- abandoning meat products in general. I've even seen uh, vegan farming starting to come out where they don't use any animal products in the cultivation of vegetables. And I I don't even know where to start with this. I mean, there is no environment on this planet that did not co-evolve with animals and their impact on every part of vegetative and soil life as well. What's your take on this, on on the necessity of understanding the, the role of animals in a holistic view of agriculture, but also our diet.
1: I mean, in simple way, I think it's obvious, you know? And like you said, there are no vegetarian ecosystems. There are people trying to farm without animal inputs. There's no evidence how long that will work for. Maybe in the tropics, that's more suited where biomass holds all of the nutrients and Not the soils like in our climates, but I mean, people, I mean, if we go back anthropologically, we developed a large telencephalon and an opposable thumb because of our consumption of animal fats primarily. You can't evolve a brain like ours eating avocados and things like that. And It's only the excesses of animal agriculture that led to the spread of human civilization north and south of the equator. In fact, it's animal agriculture that led to what we call civilization. You can't get excesses uh, without the power of animals or the fat and storable protein and the hides and skin that they offer for clothing. Um, I think they've been demonized on this Simpleness of extrapolating how industrial production works. You know the whole classic meme thing of red meat bad, vegetables good. It's like, yeah, that's true of industrial production, but that's the complete one hundred and eighty degree opposite of real farming. And I think you know a majority of people living, in an urban environment disconnected from ecosystem processes who want to feel good about their lives, want to feel like they're contributing and doing the right thing and so it's very easy to sway people in that mindset with pictures of industrial cattle raising and you a know, field of cabbage doesn't look so hostile or menacing and so I see why that's come about, but it's just based on very poor understanding of ecosystem processes, very poor understanding of physiology, and history that's been warped through different actors for different reasons. You know, um, I could think of all kinds of examples of studies that are just set on such false premises. And they're used for marketing in different directions. But still today, like something that's, you know, if you look at documentaries or people that are studying anthropologically, tribes that are still living close to the carrying capacity of their land, they are still gaining most of their calories from animal fats. They often even reject muscle meat because they favor the fat. And they're not coming back to the village celebrating, bringing home some fruit. They come back to the village celebrating catching a wild pig because it's gonna feed them the nutrients they need. And you'll also notice that they always eat the organs, but liver is one of the most highly prized foods in nearly all traditional cultures on the planet. You know, and it's even revered in parts of Africa that you can't touch it because it's so sacred. You know. 20 to 80 times more nutritious than muscle meat. So these are like the power foods. And what you find if you look at the way different cultures around the world eat, they all have power foods and they're all animal based. They're things like organ meats or fermented meats or the first butter made from the first spring milk. And these are foods that were traditionally sacred and kept for pregnant and lactating mothers. And obviously nutrition is in its paramount. So, yeah, I don't know. I think people have got very disconnected from, from the world around them, but also disillusioned with industrial models. And whilst we're very informed about regenerative farming and all of the beautiful parts of that, I think most people are not. And you're very easily steered by... You know, all it takes is one agrochemical company to write a hit piece on something to do with regenerative farming, and they can tear it down because their exposure and marketing is thousands of times bigger. So it's complex problems, but you know, I I trust the simple maxims that I've uh, already alluded to. You know, people have evolved to eat things that are found around us
0: forever yeah yeah there's so much more that we could say about this I mean I often see animal agriculture compared in its worst industrialized manifestations to let's say the vegetables that you pull out of your garden and that's not even apples and oranges that's you know apples and bread you know um when you compare such unlike things and break it down to metrics such as oh it takes however many thousand liters of water to produce a kilo of beef whereas you could produce so many more calories with grain and legumes it's like okay but (laughs) we haven't evolved to eat those mostly in the way that they're presented to us in in stores and You know, the the way that animals could be raised and integrated in with entire ecosystems is not only essential for the potential of our own health and and uh, and diets, but also the health of those ecosystems as well. And the constant comparison of unlike things is is always going to warp the perception. But let's move on from that for a second and talk about the transformation then of products, because we've talked about the quality of various uh, animal and, and vegetable products in and of themselves. But there's an incredible alchemy, which is so closely tied with rhythms of life and cultures that come from fermentation and preservation of different types and is quite featured in this book as well. Now, of course, this is going to be somewhat specific to the culture and the place in the world that you are cooking from. But maybe talk about what you have learned from being in Sweden and knowing about the traditions of preservation and fermentation of the typical products and ingredients that you would find in that area of the world.
1: Mm. Well, I mean, so different food preservation, I mean, one would be fermentation and that's a big one for enzyme rich foods and having live food with influence on the microbiome and you know i think increasingly mainstream science is looking at microbiome health as you know you could essentially boil down a huge proportion of human disease to unhealthy guts so there's different ways we could think about that and fermented foods is going to be a big part of that bone broth and meat broth is a big part of that Animal fats is a big part of that. Uh, not eating any denatured foods is a big part of that. M- limiting sugar is a big part of that. You know, and most people are not aware how much the gut microbiome influences our behavior, our emotions, mood, our hormone release, etc. Nearly all of our dopamine and serotonin is made in the gut. And so, you've got 10 times more gut bacteria than you have human cells in your body, and they are programming you. You know, they are responsible for more of your behavior than, than most people would realize. And so, what we feed them and how we train them influences our health and well being on a huge level. And that even goes down to the water that you drink, it goes down to things like intermittent fasting like humans never had three meals a day and i've instinctively since i left home as a young teenager i've only ever eaten a couple of meals a day uh, just out of following my instinct and more in the sort of latter years i've been very specifically working with intermittent fasting limiting eating to six to eight hours to allow the gut time to rest and synthesize. And these things have a massive impact on many processes throughout the body. And I think that's a you know a big thing to think of too. But going back to fermented foods, so the first thing to say is that, you know, I've said already, but just to reiterate that every culture on earth processed its grains. And I think this is the most important point because we make up such a large proportion of our calories today from grains. And they're not bad in their own right, but all grains need to be leavened. And that goes for legumes and nuts too. So in the recipe book, the every time these ingredients are used, they are leavened properly. So things like nuts, that's dry roasting without fat. But things like legumes and grains, that's working with sourdoughs and leavening, like leaving soaking in kefir water or something like this overnight to neutralize phytic acids, uh, enzyme inhibitors, tannins, other anti-nutrients. So most people are aware that plants produce a lot of plant toxins and anti-nutrients as a chemical defense mechanism because animals can run away. So there's virtually no toxic animals. The, the, the proportion of toxic animals is A few percent of all animal species on Earth, whereas the proportion of toxic plants is very high because plants can't run away. So they must develop defense mechanisms against being eaten, particularly for their seeds, flowers, leaves, roots, basically all of their plant material. They can't afford to be eaten. So we need to treat those properly in order to get the nutrition out of them like most plant nutrition is quite hard to access and the anti-nutrients can cause problems with absorbing nutrients from other places in the diet too so in a simple way you could say okay if you want to eat bread pasta these kind of things then you ferment it so we have a whole chapter in the book on sourdough what's nice about it is it incorporates how to use like anyone that keeps the sourdough will know that every day you're feeding the sourdough and throwing away the discard so it's how to use that discard to make all of the things you might normally eat like flatbreads and crackers and whatever it is you can always make it with leavened bread so you can completely eliminate if you're making your own bread and bread products you can completely eliminate unprepared grains which is fantastic on a vegetable front, you know, or milk front, there's a whole chapter on preservation through fermentation of vegetable products and fruit products as a way of preservation, but also as a nutrient uh, density approach to eating. And these are foods that you typically want to have in your diet on a daily basis, whether it's things like sauerkraut or kimchi through to more exotic uh, recipes. And then fermented milk products is a big one. and that's a way of keeping milk or raw milk safe. Raw milk is very safe and great for human uh, immune system in its raw form. But uh, when it's fermented, it's often suitable for people who can't tolerate store-bought milk at all. And obviously brings with it uh, shelf life, etc. but a lot of beneficial uh, microbes as well. Uh, so they are things that, we, you know, this whole book is presented in a in a way of anatomically appropriate eating. So if we're going to eat beef, we'll eat the nose, the cheeks, the, you know, start at the head, end at the tail, and we'll have 70% mince-based recipes, 20% stew-based recipes, 10% fine-cut recipes. And that kind of approach goes to these other foods, it's like preserved foods want to eat on a daily basis so there's a lot of recipes in that chapter to give a variety and you know to keep it fun and exciting too so fermenting is a really big one but it also involves you know treats like fermented fruits and condiments for the table all the different sauces most cultures around the world have a green sauce and a red sauce and you know they have many shapes and sizes and whatever but we've provided a whole list of all the condiments you could ever want from barbecue sauces to ketchups to fruity plum sauces all these amazing condiments but they're all fermented living probiotic things which is fantastic and then beverages that's an easy way for people to bring probiotics into their diet through milk-based ferments like uh, sorry um uh, kefir and things like that and fruit-based beverages things like crafts etc and then the luxury things like fermented fruits for desserts and things like that and that's been an interesting part of my journey is because i've always fed my kids quite uh, carefully and low sugar and farm food it's always interesting navigating the sensitivity of like having friends over and seeing what my kids' friends are used to and their palate. And you can train your palate. And that's something that, you know, if you come from a super sugar-rich processed food diet, it can be quite a big shift to eat like this because the flavors are much more uh, broad and deep and a lot less sweet. And a lot more bitter foods and a lot more, you know, it's interesting because I think that people have developed very narrow taste palettes. And another part of that is also very soft foods. Most people aren't used to chewing anymore. And there's a lot of research right now about how people are changing their own structure of their jaws through simply by chewing more. You can actually, as an adult, you can grow bone material in your jaw, which was previously thought uh, not to be possible just from starting to eat foods that you actually chew a lot more, which obviously is linked to enzymatic uh, release, which helps with digestion, et cetera. So there's a whole knock-on ripple effect of, of some of these things, but lacto is a, a big part of that. And there's probably a good 60, 70 recipes in the book that follow the fermentation.
0: And this is fascinating for me because although I have quite a few experiences from the past sort of individually, even before I got into farming, I used to work in a traditional European bakery in the United States when I was a student uh, going to engineering school, which really opened me up to the process of fermenting grains and was instrumental uh, as part of my understanding of fermentation, which finally helped me get on top of the chronic digestive issues that I had throughout my entire 20s. Um, when I started to make my own breads and ferment my own foods. I make kimchi now all the time. I've got, you know, plenty of things that uh, are just a process through my life now, which transform these products into something that is much more beneficial for me and has really changed my life in a lot of ways. Um, But also understanding how much of a lifestyle change that is as well. Now, it's probably not as pronounced for you since you grew up close to the land and farming and with a lot of these processes, you talk about how your mother always made uh, food from scratch your entire childhood. And yet, you know, this is such an all-encompassing way of living now where nutrition is almost just a byproduct of the way that you interact with the landscape and the products that you derive from it. But perhaps you've seen through students and other people who have passed through your farm and, You know taking your courses how this transforms the way they live not only the way they eat
1: yeah i think i like well just going back like i grew up fishing and uh, also foraging and as you said my mother produced all of our food from scratch and that's how i've ended up providing for my kids and it's been a luxury to as I've put down the farm, I've had the time to really focus on food. And ironically, while I was building up the farm, I was working at such a high pace that I didn't put the care and attention in to treat the foods I was producing with the respect and care that I would like to, because the focus was on producing for customers and the efficiency needed to make a small farm work. And so it's been luxurious for me to have You know, I've been constantly reminded throughout this process of just how beautiful it's been to have the time and space to get really deep into all the things I've been producing. And I guess that I've been aware that the world has shifted a lot since I was a child. I was just talking about this in different contexts last night and thinking back to, you know, when I was raised, it was normal for one parent to stay at home and take care of a household and that was normal and now it's you know certainly when I moved to Sweden I was immediately aware that it's very normal for both parents to work full time and that was a bit of a shock and I see that that's normalizing all over the place but that's not really the future I want I want to have the time to take care of these things I think there's also habits and routines and ways to build these things into your life you know if you start a a sourdough regiment it's not so hard to build that in you just need a bit of full planning I think a lot of people have forgotten a lot of these things because they take more time and everything in our modern life is geared towards convenience and instant returns and real valuable things don't ever work like that and I think it's it takes people a long time to, to realize that and um, but I think, yeah, just to say that you can definitely build those things into into your routine. And if you have a small holding or a farm, then it's much more natural to do that because you have to take care of certain things when they need taken care of. You don't really have a choice with animals or milk or things like this. But I think for going to your question, like most of the students that have passed through my trainings, who go on to then build a place for their own, it radically transforms their life on many levels, including food. Because, I mean, you couldn't help but be transformed by that, to be seeing the impact of your work on a day-to-day basis and over time and how that influences an ecosystem. And to root and ground yourself in a space and the pride that comes, you know, it's this cliche of, Bring kids to the farm because a kid that picks his own carrots is going to eat all them carrots. Whereas if they come from a store and they're boiled and soggy, they're not going to eat them because they that's not attractive. And I think that's the same with adults. You know there's a joy in the joy and and especially if you have the privilege to take a sheep or some animal, you're going to want to use every bit of that carefully and skillfully, even if it takes a whole weekend. You know, it's like there's not much else to do. You can go out and party over there or you can stay in and take care of this whole sheep for the next six months worth of eating and make sure you use every bit of the internals and the fat and render your own suet and all these things i mean i think it takes over people because it's an innate memory somewhere within this i think you know it it makes sense and it feels fulfilling to know that you're putting down a food supply for your loved ones and know that you've done the job well and taken care of all of it and closed the nutrient cycle and learned some new skills and maybe done it with your friends anyway and had a bunch of fun doing it, you know. So I think it it's a lifestyle that takes people in and it's hard to get out of that again because it's you know, it's we've talked about this before. It's hard to go out for dinner because there's nowhere I can go that makes better food than we have. So
0: it's Exactly the same here, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's really important what you say too, and I've seen this come up for people who, you know, live about as far away from a farm as you could expect. My sister who lives in Kuwait city. <laughs> I mean, there's no cultivation happening anywhere near there unless it's on life support basically. And she's still gone through the the real effort to even plant simple vegetables in pots up on their roof. And maybe they cultivate them through the winter because it's too bloody hot during the summer and showing her children like this is where food comes from this is how you take care of it and you better believe they eat every single thing that comes out of those pots uh yeah, yeah. it's it's a it's a participation that breeds respect and reverence for the living things that are incorporated into your physiology that cannot be surrogated through buying them in a prepackaged form right Uh, I think it is so vital and you've done a tremendous job about documenting the process of bringing your children along with you in this lifestyle journey and the development of the farm and talking about what is important for you in their nutrition, in the habits and the lifestyle that they become accustomed to, which has just been a very powerful message, which is so rare to find, especially in social media communication, right? And Mm. I'm curious, so Okay, you may have been connected to the land and kind of whole food eating since you were a child, but your lifestyle has gone through quite a few transformations, especially in these last couple of years, as you have reduced the work that you were doing on the farm. It's no longer a production farm the way it used to be, and are in the middle of some big transformations in your lifestyle and your priorities. I wonder if you could talk about, first of all, what instigated the... Reduction in so much work and effort in developing the farm. How that has gone through its own transformation, and what you're thinking about for the future now.
1: Sure. Well, it's maybe a long story, but yeah, I I think it's worth going back to the original context of this farm, which was a two pronged context. One was to make a profitable mixed farm, and the other was to facilitate others to do the same so i didn't move to rural sweden to raise chickens or vegetables i moved here to start a revolution as best i could and i'm satisfied with the influence i had there and i remember there's definitely a video on youtube somewhere a few years ago where i was i was talking about pasted boilers or something and i just something sank in me and it's like I'm just saying the same thing I've said for the last seven years in a row it's like there's nothing I can teach anyone from here anymore Like it lost something for me in that I wasn't learning anymore it's like I know how to do this I've documented how to do this I've shared it in every way I can think of but I'm not getting any stimulation out of this anymore I could sit here and run this farm But that's not why i set up this farm i would rather sit here and just make my own food i don't need the income from the farm i'm i'm lucky enough to have much easier ways to make income that i don't need to let's say bust my balls working super hard anymore i don't need to do that so what do i really want to put my focus to i've also always been engaged in education and like to do that and have a, some level of gift with that, that's, that's a priority. And I'm also inspired moving into the future to look at things through a different lens. So this world of farming, I feel like I've, I've put down the resource base that I can share with the world around that and I've got that resource sitting there that people can tap into that. But something that's even more pressing, perhaps, is how to do these things on the family level. So I'm interested as I get older and you know, want to spend more time doing, pursuing some of my other interests, too. I'm interested to apply that analytical thinking to, let's say, a homestead, to like a family level production. Like how I've I've even thought of like ideas around like four hour homestead or things like this. Like how little can you do to produce all your own needs? Like a whole human diet from this homestead in a few hours a week. How would that look? You know, and apply this rigorous thinking to it. Uh, so that's something that excites me, and something I also see that's being lost very quickly. Like I run these educations on the farm in the in the boiler processing unit for teaching people how to process pasture boilers, and we built one of the cheapest approved slaughter facilities. So then I took the responsibility on to train people how to operate this, so they could go off and do the same, and that course is always five times oversubscribed. And it's, I think there's a massive need for, like how do I raise a pig in my backyard and how do I process it properly? Most people have lost those skills and their skills that I think, like there's a man I work with locally who used to work for the Swedish uh, agricultural board. And he's always saying every time I see him, I am the last of this generation like he's the person everyone calls if someone hit a a moose with the car like he takes care of all these things and he's extremely knowledgeable and skilled especially in old ways of drying and fermenting meat and these kind of things that people just don't go near anymore you know and i feel like i got inspired to take some part of those reins of like teaching people simple practical skills in that yes i can sit here and teach people this type of farming but it's a very small number of people who are ever going to do this and actually there's a huge number of people that want to do this on a home level for their family that don't ever have any intention to do that commercially and that's somewhere that i could be interested in too and it's also part of my process is forming a new relationship and that's a big influence on what i want to do another big influence is my daughter starting high school she's moved to me full-time in sweden and that's obviously a major change in her life and my life and so i'm interested to move to an area where there's a lot more opportunity than there is here we're in a very rural location here and i don't think i would want to grow up as a teenager without access to certain things that I can see elsewhere. So that's influencing it a lot too. Um, but also just reapplying that balance. I always felt like I I did a career's worth of hours on Ridgedale in a very compressed way. And so I've earned a bit of rest time and I think I'm gonna take it. So I'll always be doing things on the land i just i don't need to be efforting to do that commercially and i'm lucky enough to be in that position that i'll just do it at the scale i actually need for family but still be able to benefit people on all scales from family to farm scale anyway and it will also free up time like i get a lot of opportunities to consult and design around the world and i've always said no because I'm too busy here and so part of I love to travel and I used to do that a lot and so that's also an influencing factor in decision making is I want to have the opportunity to be able to say yes to some of these other opportunities as well as some of the other interests that I want to pursue way outside of this field
0: very interesting and it makes me think about what you may have learned. What are some of the biggest takeaways from these last eight, nine years of just slogging it to develop this farm and make these educational resources available in the process of doing so? What are the things that you, you've gained from this and have really informed your next steps?
1: Well, there's lots of elements there. I mean, we all get older. I'm not 32 anymore. <laughs> Uh, I think, you know, I noticed in my own life, like 33, 34 is kind of peak energy. And I guess they see that in athletics and different fields. But it, it's definitely true. I mean, the energy I'd wanted to set up this farm since I was about 15 years old. So when the opportunity was there, this and it, it felt like something pouring through me. I didn't feel like I was working. It felt like work and rest and play were synonymous. Uh, But definitely in the last years, I feel my age more. And, you know, I like to rest a little longer, sleep a little longer. My sleep patterns changed. I used to sleep six hours from about 18 to 35. I slept six hours every day, and that was adequate. That's gone up to seven and a half. So, you know, that's a subtle thing, but it changes what you want to do in a day. And, yeah, also that thing of just feeling like completing what I set out to do here. You know, I could I could sit here and watch this landscape forever. Uh, but I'm also desiring a bit more. Uh, I'm, you know, a foreigner in a foreign country. It's a pretty interesting thing. And I want to be closer to civilization. I have a, a much bigger social network where we're looking to move. So that's a big contributing factor too. And I think one of the biggest takeaways is I, I had to sacrifice a lot to do what I did. And a big part of that was social life. You know, I, I derived the social life from all the people coming to the farm, but that's not a meaningful, that's a lot of fun, um, but it's not the, the level of meaningful connection that I want in my life. and. Most of my close friends are spread all over the world now. So it's also why I want a bit more time to free up travel to go touch base with some of my friends. Um, But I think I've said to you before on this podcast, I mean, setting up a farm is doable, but that's a full time job like trying to write books and videos at the same time that's a whole nother full-time job and i don't recommend that to most people <laughs> like you have to really feel like you're motivated to do that to to put those extra hours um it's not a good way to set out it just kind of happens. but yeah taking on but it's kind of how I wanted it to be I wanted to I think I said from day one as soon as the vineyard on the pond is pruning I'm retiring and taking it easy and I, I knew I would do something very intensely and not necessarily carry it on forever I'm planning to keep the farm I'm not sure how to manage that yet but I plan to see it move on and evolve in different ways uh, I'm very attached to the place. I mean, I know it's like right in the back of my hand. So, um, but I also, you know, another thing to speak to that is like I can also wake up and just think, yeah, it's a bunch of veg beds, some trees, some fences. It's like you can recreate that anywhere, you can regenerate any piece of land. Um, so, I, I feel quite easy to go of it in the way it was, because it doesn't need to be that for me anymore.
0: This is really interesting to me, and maybe I can get some advice from you as well, since I'm basically at the beginning of the development of my place. I'm maybe two years older than you were when you started, and I have a head full of very ambitious ideas, as everyone who starts this sort of thing is, of documenting the process of diverse enterprises, of all of the things that are going to interconnect, but Looking back on this, maybe what would you do differently or maybe some cautionary advice of not taking on too much, which I've definitely heard before, but I'm not heeding very well at the moment.
1: Well, I don't know if I should give advice on that. I mean, the reasons, some of the bigger reasons that have stimulated these changes have nothing to do with this that I have not ever talked about and I don't think I will. So I think the root cause of some of these changes is these responses have all been dealing with that. Um, And I, yeah, I don't think I'll ever talk about that in a public way, but um, I don't think that, well, delegating earlier, you know, like looking back, if I, just employed someone to deal with making documentation like filming and social media that would have annexed all of the influence of that probably and taken away a lot of overtime um, like delegation would be a big one and I think when you it's an interesting and this applies to any business I guess but in the beginning you kind of need or you want to be in control of all the threads to a understand it and B, be able to leverage it in different directions. But I think a lot of businesses and you could therefore say projects fail when you. End up taking on too much and don't give out trust and control in other things. That's not what's happened in my case, but I think that's something to, it's a principle of scaling any business that can be applied to. like. So the big failing, I think, in my experience here is that I always wanted long-term collaborators. And I've tried multiple different ways to do that. But the biggest flaw is that it would require people to move to the middle of nowhere in Sweden, which just never happened. I mean, I've offered people very tidy parts of the business, uh, very good salaries but it's mostly been people from abroad that are just not willing to you know they may have stayed two or three years but to move their whole life and start life here is too challenging Um, that wouldn't be the case if you're in a more populated area or like it's fair to say in Sweden when I moved here there wasn't very much happening on this front you know like we kind of started up the process of regenerative ag here you could say and it nowadays if i started now i'm sure it'd be easier to find local people who wanted to get engaged certainly if i live near a population center but that's something to consider is like finding long-term people because something that was exhausting for me was definitely having to train people from scratch each year and just forgetting how little people know And even very skilled, knowledgeable people, they have to learn things in the time, place, and circumstance of what you're doing. And often, it's a cliche, but often really experienced people were less useful than not experienced people because they just come with bad habits or different habits that aren't suitable here. Uh, But that process definitely became exhausting of having to start from scratch. That's not a nice way to run the business. Um, and that fell pretty much almost entirely on me so that bit shouldn't be understated like finding long-term people locally like not your friends who are going to help out for a year or two and then go off like people that live where you are and are up for, for being committed life lifers. that that would make it i would probably still be running the farm in that case because i would just be taking an overarching managerial point. So I've got a large network of people who could do that, but then it would be different each year. That That's too much logistics that so I don't want to manage that anymore.
0: That's so interesting for me to hear because that was a big determining factor for us deciding where we moved here. I mean, I would have been very happy to have moved into the middle of the Pyrenees where there was absolutely nobody for hours around. But my partner, <laughs> as smart as she is, kind of gave us a radius around Barcelona for which we could move, which was very difficult for our budget. But I was willing to maybe take on a bigger upfront cost, knowing that these longer term collaborations were going to be key to some of our goals. And the fact that we're, we feel quite isolated and there's a town of 82 people, but we're 20 minutes from a decent sized regional city. And there is quite a skill and knowledge base of local people very close to us. Um, and at the same time it's determining a lot of the first development steps that I would love to jump past basically we're putting a lot of energy right now into uh, getting our own living quarters comfortable set up and private from the rest of the building which will be dedicated to business because I learned from the failed collaboration in Guatemala that if you don't have privacy and a perimeter for for your own space and being able to limit yourself and your interactions with the people around you who are around all the time that really was the weak point that caused the breakdown of relationships which later led me to moving here and so by by getting that yeah (laughs) even though i would love to be going out there and you know getting animals and Starting certain farm enterprises right away—that that was one of my key learnings from my own experience. That you know, making sure that your life and your privacy and your security are taken care of first, and then being able to expand and include others from that base—is uh, is worth it.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it's super important, and that's something we like had difficulty with here in the beginning, where we used our home kitchen as a commercial kitchen. quickly changed i remember
0: that
1: from yeah 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 that's a really big one i would say and you can you know i if you are able to form rules together in your partnership of i i don't know i never found that particularly useful but you know having like on and off hours where you're not talking about work like living with a partnership where you live where you work like forming those boundaries is difficult but i don't know if i ever came to a really clear solid place with that because inevitably one or other is always stuck in a thought train about something
0: oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm having difficulties with that too but as you said like at least talking about it Um, I've included, well, necessarily, I've included her her in the development of our holistic context and making sure that we're at least on the same page about the larger vision and the core patterns that we use to create schedules and plans for the future in a way that considers the other person's priorities has been really fundamental. Now, I'm coming to this from experience in homesteading, and she grew up her whole life in the middle of Barcelona. And so we're coming at it from very different perspectives, but it's kind of all the more reason to make sure that decisions are made together, at least in my case, Ooh. Um, Ooh. so that this isn't something that we get further down the line and say, oh, wait, we weren't in agreement on this. How did we get here, you know? And it's it's something that I, I learn and revisit every week, at least if not every day. So this will continue to develop as as our farm does as well. Well, yeah, look, that
1: sounds to- really healthy.
0: Yeah, well to bring this full circle, let's get back quickly to the book so that folks who are listening know where to find it because it's still on a Kickstarter. Although you've more than surpassed your original goal, how can people support the development of this and maybe get an early discount on a copy for themselves?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, the way I've published all the books, we self-publish from the farm and send them out around the world. And this book's the same. So we're raising the money to try and get the prints together on Kickstarter. So as of uh, end of March, we've got a couple of weeks left. Now it's an expensive book but it's a 950 page book. So it's about five times the size of most cookbooks and it's two or two and a half times the price. So it's very good value. I'd like to feel like the books I put out are all very good value but they are very big books which is why they have a price there, Um, but there's information on Kickstarter I think if people check any of my social channels or maybe I don't know if you have links available but there can be a link to the Kickstarter I don't know the final price of the book when it's available to the public it won't be available till probably July August time Uh, so by supporting the Kickstarter it's a slightly discounted copy and you'll get it much quicker They'll all be shipped out before it's available to the public. It's been a very expensive book to produce because I've been paying for other chefs and all of the ingredients needed to make all of these recipes. So it's been a really big investment. That the fundings are about 200% funded, but it's still not covered costs. And so it's, it's going to take a while to do that, but it's enough to gauge the interest to determine how big a print run to take initially Uh, we're going to be printing that with the ethical printer that we use in Poland they have a coppice agroforestry site that they manage to heat all their production and they use the highest quality inks that are possible printing is a bit of a toxic industry but they do the best that can be done and they're a really nice organization that i've worked with um, For the last two books. So that's gonna go to print and this is a chance to get a slightly discounted copy quicker than it will be available to the public.
0: Brilliant. Well, I am really looking forward to getting my copy when this comes out. Your previous books have been such an inspiration and an assistance for me, not only with working with the farming community around Europe, but also seeing a little bit of myself reflected as a a international transplant into a different European country and trying to understand the very highly regulated world of farming on this continent. Um, I thank you so much for the resources that you've put out and I can't wait to, to get my own copy here. I'll be sure to include a link to the Kickstarter. And I also very much look forward to continuing to follow your journey and seeing what new adventures and projects
1: come up for you. Ooh, thanks so much, I really appreciate
0: that. It. Hey, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for your time. I look forward to talking again in the future. Sure, thanks. Thanks once again to Richard. I've included the link to support the Kickstarter campaign for this book, as well as links to his YouTube channel, social media, websites, and the previous episodes that I've recorded with him to get you all caught up. Now, before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the learning resources, design and coaching services, in-person courses, and interactive community that are available through Regenerative Skills. The Discord server is our free community where you can connect with other like-minded listeners exchange ideas, stories, tips, and resources, as well as interact with me directly and quite a few former guests from this show. Our Instagram account, at regen underscore skills, is the best place to see the projects that me and the team are working on, both for clients and collaborators, as well as on our own properties. I'll also be announcing the certification courses, workshops, and gatherings that we've got coming up later this year. If you're interested in getting dedicated support for your own project, You can now schedule a free planning session with one of our team members through the request form on our website. You can also find all the links, show notes, and past resources there at regenerativeskills.com. We truly believe that no matter your experience, your knowledge, abilities, resources, or background, you can be a powerful force for regeneration on this planet. And we're here to help you find your path. So as always, remember to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.